I just finished watching The Dropout on Hulu. Have you guys seen that? It's is a, that about Elizabeth Holmes or is that? Yes. I've not seen it, but I've heard yeah. of that. <laughs> That's my um, baseline knowledge at this point of how one finances a startup. <laughs> Which well, is, that, that is one way to do it. That's one way to do it. Probably don't want to do there, that. There are other ways to go about it. Every successful company you can think of started off as a jumbled string of thoughts in the back corners of someone's mind. Maybe it was as simple as noticing a problem that, so far, no one else had figured out how to solve. From there, inspiration became an idea, and somehow, along the way, this jumbled string of thoughts became a business. For Amir Shaja and Albert Awusu Asari, class of 2016, the problem was clear, the solution was tangible, and it was their Grinnell connection to each other that brought the other pieces into place. This year, the pair of former roommates made the Forbes 30 under 30 list for their successful startup, Kadana. Nicholas and I decided to call them up and ask 30 questions about how they got from here to there. From the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College, I'm Meredith Benjamin. Stay with us. Welcome to Going Forth. It's so nice to see you guys. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for inviting us. Uh, nice to be here. Can you guys start by telling us who you are? That's going to be question number one. Sure, I, I can go first. So my name's Amir Shaja. My pronouns are he, him. Um, I'm originally from Pakistan, but I came to the U.S. when I went to Grinnell. I'm class of 2016, and I'm the co-founder of Kadana. Yeah, my name is Albert Owusu Asari. Originally from Ghana, West Africa, came to Grinnell 2016 as well. And I'm the other co-founder of Kadana. Fantastic. So what is Kadana? Kadana is a platform that allows African workers to get paid on demand. We effectively partner with businesses and offer our instant pay product as an extra benefit for, for the employees. On top of that, we also give them software to basically make payroll process a little bit seamless. So that is what Kadana is in a nutshell. Amazing. And we're going to probe a little bit more on that later on. But before we get ahead of ourselves, what was your time like at Grinnell? Honestly, one of the best periods of my life. So I did a double major in physics and computer science. I was also on the tennis team, which took up a chunk of my time. I was also a math tutor for, I think, since my second semester for, for about three and a half years. And I think that also was a ton of fun. I, I met so many cool people in the math lab. So, I mean, overall, some of the best four years. Similar. So, you know, me and I were both computer science, uh, physics double majors. So we spent a lot of time uh, together in class. I think we lived um, different parts of campus together as well, usually also on the same floor. I did a little bit of soccer, both for the Grinnell soccer team, and then also did a lot of intramurals and things like that. I was a CS tutor, so I tutored for computer science, and then I was involved in the African Caribbean Students Union, so ACSU. Generally, a very, very, very fun time, very good time, I think was one of the best experiences as well uh, for me. I'd love to hear about how you two know each other. Can you tell me the story of when you first met? 
it was pretty much, I think the second day that we both came to Grinnell. So, you know, we had, I think it's called IPOP, like International Student Orientation before NSO. And I think there was a event in the JRC. I forget what the exact team was, but they were basically like a, a mixer for all of the international kids. I think we still have a picture where we're all standing outside the JRC. Albert, I don't know if you remember. And I think that was really the day where we met. And like Albert said, we've been very, very close friends since then. Oh my gosh. Second day. Wow. That's awesome. So you went to Grinnell, you had a good experience, you were friends, and then you had to graduate. What was going through your mind? Yeah, one other fun fact is we've been roommates pretty much after Grinnell. So we've been roommates for like maybe five or four years now. We both got jobs in New York. And so we're quite frankly, very excited to, <laughs> to see what the, the Big Apple is all about. And so for me, it was just, you know, we're going to miss our friends, uh, but I was also looking forward to uh, new friends and also carrying on with Amir in New York. But, but I'm curious what Amir's... No, <laughs> 100%, was. 100%. I think there was like a mix of excitement and sadness. You know, to be frank, you know, I come from Pakistan. Iowa isn't exactly the America that people imagine when they, you know, come to the US. So part of me was just very excited to like just leave Iowa and be in like a big city and experience what the bigger part of the America is like. Yeah. So what did you do right after graduation? What was that job in New York? So I was working for a bank on Wall Street, Deutsche Bank, for a couple of years. And then after that, transitioned to working at Amazon as an engineer for about four years or so before before starting this with Albert. Yeah, similarly, um, I was also working for another bank, Goldman Sachs, actually for a few years before I left to join another startup. What inspired you to start Kadana? I think we're very privileged to have done really interesting things, right? At Goldman, at Deutsche Bank, Amir, at Amazon. But it was always really just a feeling of how can we have a bigger impact, right? How do we make sure that we're, we're solving real problems, big problems for the world? For us, I think it was just, I'm here from Pakistan, I'm from Ghana. It was also a story of how do we go back home and try to add some value. So I started having a dialogue actually with my sister. She had graduated from college, still in Ghana, just getting paid. And like, you know, every middle of the month, she's like, hey, can you send me some money? I'm like, well, I thought I was done with that. Like, you're, you're working now. You should, be, you should be making your own money. What's going on? And it was just a classic problem of there's all of these expenses in the middle of the month. I have to wait till the 30-day mark, right, to actually get paid. Here, we get paid like every two weeks. And then basically double-clicked into that and we realized, oh man, okay, this is actually a problem. There's about 400 million people, right, on the continent that basically have the same experience. So maybe this is that impactful mission that we had been searching for and maybe we should dive into it. Wow. Can you help me understand a little bit more about why this monthly payment cycle disadvantages people in developing countries more? I was reading about things like cash flow issues and short-term liquidity stuff and credit, um, but as somebody who knows very little about how that works, can you just you know briefly give us a little explanation into what these problems are and what the roots of them are? Number one is that people just don't get paid as much as developed economies. That's the number one factor. And like you mentioned, you know, people in the developing world are used to getting their paychecks every two weeks, which is not great, but at least it's better than waiting a whole month to be able to get paid. And if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're not making enough money to begin with, what that translates into is that you're not going to have a ton of savings. So if something's happened in the middle of the month, you don't even have access to your own salary and you also don't have like a, a savings net that you can tap into. 
The other thing that really, you know, confounds the whole problem is that the credit infrastructure also is like pretty much non-existent there. So there aren't a lot of good data sources that companies can use to underwrite loans. So what ends up happening is, you know, if somebody does want to get the loan, the rates they get are absolutely ridiculous. Like you might get a loan for like 20% a month. So when people are truly desperate and they get into these cycles, it becomes even harder for them to get out of them. Okay, so where does Kadana come in to all of this? How does Kadana offer a solution to these problems? This is sort of where software and technology comes in, right? So the monthly pay cycle thing is actually like very old. It goes back to like hundreds of years ago, right? And it was really because of a few factors. For example, accounting teams and finance teams just don't have the luxury of trying to run payroll every, every other day, right? It's just a lot of work. Um, there's also practices around how they used to balance their books. Now, you know, this sort of modern era, there's technology. And so uh, what we do effectively is we basically have a mobile app. Every day, basically, that you work, you see a balance, right? That corresponds to how much you've worked, right? So let's just say today was the 13th of the month. You open an app and you're like, okay, you have worked 13 days. This is where your balance is. You basically press a button. You're able to cash out that 13 days of your earnings. And so fast forward, when we actually comes time for us to run payroll, like with your business, we know how much you've taken so far. We basically deduct at that point and then give you the remainder. So this is just using technology, using different integrations to, to power this experience. And it's really just a win-win, right? Employers don't have to spend time running payroll periodically and then employees can get paid whatever they want, essentially. That's amazing. I know the power of technology. <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm curious, was that the initial vision when you had that kind of light bulb moment? Was this current rendition of Kadana what you initially imagined? I think it's evolved a bit and it kind of goes back to what Albert was saying about the lack of infrastructure and where technology comes in. So what we started with was that, okay, what is the, the quickest, fastest way to help these employees get access to their paycheck? And as we were doing that, we kind of realized that the businesses that these employees are part of don't even have the infrastructure themselves to be able to run payroll efficiently. And that's one of the reasons why they're not able to meet some of these demands of their employees. So what we said, okay, you know, businesses need help, their employees need help too. So we started also building some of these tools that can help businesses streamline their operation too. So streamline their payments, streamline their payroll, and then this earn rich access component can be built in as part of that whole experience. So businesses, as a result of this, you know, gain efficiencies in terms of how they operate. And because of that, their employees are also able to directly benefit because of our flexible payroll platform where they can access their paycheck anytime they want. I'm, it's funny, I have so many additional questions that are popping up, but we can save those till the end. What is your vision for Kadana's future? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it comes down to sort of that, that word I used earlier, which is impact, right? We worked on search products. Uh, I worked on credit cards. We did a whole host of things. We knew there were so many different areas that we could take what we wanted to do. But the thing that consistently came up was just people. When you look at Africa, like I said, there's about 400 million of these salaried workers and about like a decade and a half, that would be a billion folks that are working. The average age is about 19 years or so. So it's a very, very young continent. And so when we were thinking about impact, we couldn't think of a better way by making sure those workers are financially empowered. The large vision here is that if you can make these 400 million workers financially successful, there is potentially a trickle-down effect, right, to their families, to how they spend in the economy, and that we could have that, you know, massive, larger impact. So um, Kadana's vision is really to create a world where every hardworking worker on the continent has a clear path to financial success, right? And that's what we're setting up to build. 
That's amazing. So this is a CLS podcast, meaning what we really want is for students to be able to see themselves in the stories of Grinnell alumni and try to get a clear picture of how to get where they want to go. I'm hoping that you can walk me through the process of financing a startup, right? What funding did you guys rely on in your earliest days? I mean, we'd been working for a few years and that was part of the reason why we kind of delayed taking this leap is because we wanted to build up sort of like a cushion that we could tap into when we went into this full time. So in the early, early, early days, you know, when it was just me and Albert, we were basically relying on our savings. But the goal really then was like, get an MVP out, get a few customers. And because of that, we were able to get into one of the leading startup accelerators. And what that did was, you know, it opened up our network to all these different investors. And it also gave us a little bit of money to kind of keep going for a few months. And as a result of that, now with the network and the things that we had learned through that experience, we were able to finally raise some institutional funding through venture capitalists. And that has been what's been um, driving some of our funding for the last couple of years. And is that the standard process for somebody trying to, to launch a startup? I think to build the MVP, to get the concept, you are going to have to tap into some of your own resources. But the sooner that you can do that and get some customers, the sooner that you can jump into the next step and actually get outside funding. When you have limited resources, how do you go about deciding where to allocate them and how to allocate them most efficiently? What you really want is to sort of prove the viability of whatever your idea is. And the sooner you can get some working prototype into the hands of like a real human using your product, um, the better. So I think all of the trade-offs and all of the decisions you're probably going to be making has to be like, how do I ship faster, right? How do I get this thing in the hands of people? And that matters the most. And the reason that is important is that they would give you feedback, right? And a lot of learnings that would also determine maybe how to divert the remaining resources and how you want to go ahead. Something that I've heard people talk about before when discussing entrepreneurial culture is that it does pose significant disadvantage to marginalized communities, marginalized people who might not have the luxury of savings or of investing their time and resources into an idea that could potentially fail. Um, And even if it doesn't fail, will at least take time to have any sort of return on the investment. So I'm wondering what advice you guys might have in managing these risks and navigating these constraints. Everything you've said is very true. Um, Even for us, I think one of the reasons why we waited, you know, five, six years before starting this was exactly because of that. You know, Albert had to leave the country because of visa issues. I was stuck in some visa processing for like three, four years. So even if I wanted to, I couldn't do it. But the reason why we were able to get to a point where we finally got over that is like right out of college, we set ourselves up in a way that we had a path to get there. So what that meant for us was that working for companies that could potentially sponsor us, working for companies that could potentially sponsor our green card. That was one of the key reasons that we kind of went this route of working for these big companies, because we knew that if you go through them, eventually we're going to be able to reduce some of these risks that inherently come when you're, you know, someone who is an immigrant in this country. At the end of the day, it's a game of uh, making sure you're increasing your chances of success as much as you can. And sometimes that might mean taking a little bit of a detour. Sometimes that might mean, you know, delaying things a little bit just so that you're set up financially, just everything on your set. Speaking of success, was there ever a moment of doubt in the process or was there a moment when you were like, okay, we know this is going to work? 
one story that I have is we actually started the company like during COVID. And so, you know, we're building from our apartments or all these people that were working for the company we hadn't met yet. And then sometime last year, we actually went to Ghana, we went to Nigeria. And through that process, right, like meeting some people that were actually using our product and then hearing from them the things that it was helping them to do in life. For me, that was just an eye opener, right? So it wasn't so much so that like, this is absolutely going to work or whatever, but it was just like, well, this is actually very impactful. And that definitely, I think, carries you through and just like keeps you going. What was the biggest challenge that you guys overcame in starting Kadana? One of the key ones is, I think what we were mentioning earlier is that the infrastructure really doesn't exist in these economies. So the concept of earn rich access exists in the U.S., but it's a lot easier to implement in the U.S. because there's these centralized companies that everybody uses for payroll. Even Grinnell, I remember, uses like a company like ADP, which is one of the biggest companies. So if somebody wanted to do earn rich access in the U.S., they would just go and hook into ADP. And now they have access to the salaries of you know millions of people that they can offer this benefit to. That infrastructure doesn't exist in, in these countries. So what that basically means is now we have the, I mean, it's a challenge and an opportunity, but we are the ones who now has to build this payroll infrastructure that can then power earn wage access. So that was something we we kind of underestimated when we first started. And as we got more customers, we realized that all of them were doing different things. None of them had anything in common, which meant we had to come up with a solution for all of them to be able to offer this as a benefit to their employees. That makes a lot of a lot of sense, and I think in many ways anticipates this next question, which is more broadly, do you think that our systems and policies facilitate business startups and that kind of innovation? And maybe if not, what potential changes would facilitate that? I mean, I can speak for myself. So I'm from Pakistan, right? I know what it's like to start a company there. And compared to the U.S., it's exponentially harder. So, I mean, while there are some challenges, I think just overall, the U.S. is still the best place when it comes to starting your own company or going on this journey. These days, there's so many services that make it very straightforward to, you know, for example, incorporate a company, get a business bank account, get details on any other things that you need legally, state-wise. So, I mean, there's still some challenges, but I think compared to what I've seen, at least back home and what we have encountered as we have expanded to various countries across Africa, it is still way, way easier in the U.S. to do any of this than in any of the emerging markets. Do you have thoughts on what might make things even easier? Yeah, I think a lot of it goes back to immigration because for us, like I mentioned, we had to get certain kinds of visas that allowed us to be able to start the company. I think there's a lot of people that wish they can do it sooner. There's a whole convoluted process when it comes to immigration and H-1B visas and like your employer having to sponsor you. But if you're just, you know, a couple of people who are trying to start a company, you're not going to necessarily have the legitimacy of like a company that can sponsor your visa. So I think if there's things that can be done to make that aspect of it a little bit easier, that would definitely encourage more people to do this a lot sooner. So I have a sense of what your team looked like when you guys first started. And I, my sense is that it was just you two. But when you began to launch it and bring more people on board, what did your team look like? How did you find these people? And how does that initial team compare to what your team looks like now? Yeah, when we started, it was just me and Amir in an apartment in New York. Fast forward, we got some folks in Ghana. And so actually, uh, we brought in one of my high school friends actually from Ghana. Um, she was very excited about the mission and, and what we're building. Um, and then eventually, um, as we started getting more funds into the company, we started basically hiring out from those three people. 
Today, um, we have about 25 people in Ghana, Nigeria, Venezuela, Kenya, uh, so many different places. And we're still remote first, but it's growing steadily. That's all over the place. That is all over the place. And from two to 25 is a pretty, yeah. is a pretty big jump. You said you started during the pandemic. That's amazing. So what qualities or traits make someone best suited to work for a startup? I think there's a few key things. Um, you know, startups by definition are a little bit all over the place. So I think you have to be a bit of a generalist, like it's a especially early stage startup. It doesn't make sense to hire someone who's very specialized because, you know, day to day, your role might change depending on whatever feedback we're getting as a company. So you have to be kind of like a, a jack of all trades. And also startups by definition, like Albert mentioned, there's tons of ups and downs. Like there's going to be, you know, stretches of periods where things are not working and there's going to be periods where everybody's super happy because everything aligns. So as you're kind of going through those things, there's also a bit of resiliency that is required for early stage companies. You really have to be, I think, bought into the overall vision of the company, which I think makes those transitions between the ups and downs a little bit easier. And I think the last thing, which kind of goes back to the generalist thing again, is as we get new things that we have to focus on, you sometimes have to be willing to learn. You know, I remember in the initial days that it was just me and Albert, we were doing everything, legal, finance, hiring, HR, recruiting. I don't know anything about legal. I don't know anything about best hiring practices, but we had to learn. So you had need to have that attitude when you're looking for these people to bring on, especially early on. Yeah. What, what is the balance, would you say, between soft skills and hard skills? I think there's a baseline of hard skills. Like if you're hiring an engineer, you know, there's going to be a baseline knowledge that they need. But soft skills are, again, very important because of the, the nature of startups where communication is one of the key things that we have to get right, especially as a remote team where we don't have you know physical offices. So you obviously need to have good soft skills so you can at least communicate you know what's working, what's not working, what needs to change. So hard skills, I think there's a, there's a certain benchmark that people need, but definitely the focus would be on the soft skills initially. So what has been the most surprising part of the process of growing Kadana? One thing that maybe we underestimated was the people management aspect of it. You know, at Goldman and, and I'm here at Amazon, we, we did have teams, but here it's different, right? You go and you tell someone about your vision, they leave their jobs, right? And they come and join your wild ride. Uh, being able to effectively, you know, manage those folks well, make sure that it's very clear the direction we're headed, uh, make sure that everybody is motivated, happy, excited, make sure that people have the skills or plug them in into ways for them to develop the skills that they need, right? Even as the company progresses from one stage to the other, that has been a little bit more involving, I'll say, than maybe we thought. On the other side is, I, I spoke about this earlier, right? Like we had a perception of like impact and I think we maybe underestimated the impact we're actually having, right? So one thing that's been surprising for me is every now and then you get a WhatsApp text, right? From someone that says, hey, my child was sick and without your service, I wouldn't have been able to afford taking them to the hospital. And I think that is powerfully surprising, I, I guess. Wow. Oh my gosh, I have chills. That's amazing. Wow. I want to return to uh, what you just said about the people management. I'm hoping you can just elaborate a bit more on what you've learned about leadership from managing people in all sorts of different countries all around the world and, and bringing them on board your team. I think the word that really comes to mind is like empathy. And maybe it just doesn't even just apply to the people we manage, but even to our customers. But it's just kind of almost being able to live someone else's experience and sort of understand things from their perspective. 
it's a challenging skill, but I think it's, it's very, very much required as a leader, right? Because a lot of the times what happens is we have a multidimensional like view of a whole host of things, right? And usually the people that are reporting to us like have one or two dimensions in which you're looking at things. And so that ability for us to understand that they may have limited info or they may be seeing things differently and basically be able to like be empathetic, right? To, to their experiences, I think really, really matters. That's the one word when it comes to skills a leader should have. Great. Amir, did you want to add something to that? I think I think Albert captured that pretty well. I think the only thing I'll add is that because we are hiring in all of these different countries, all of these people come from different cultures, especially like work cultures. So, you know, in the U.S., you might have a certain perception of, you know, this is how our work is supposed to be. But people in those countries are used to something different. So just because it's different doesn't mean, you know, one's better or the other. It just means that you have to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, when there are these differences, you look at them from their perspective and be like, oh, OK, that's how you generally do things in those countries. So this is what we need to do to accommodate everyone. So everyone's happy at the end. That's such a good point. Yeah, I'd never considered how that might factor into team dynamics, I guess, in, in this process. People people literally in different time zones. I mean, even that must get really complicated and <laughs> tricky, but I'm so impressed. Yeah. So I guess jumping back a little bit to the process of launching a startup, do you guys think it's easier to envision a product and then think of a way to integrate it into the world, tying it to a problem or vice versa, where you're identifying a problem and then brainstorming a product to address it? You have to start by identifying the problem. Uh, I think if you have a very clear vision of what the problem is and how you're going to solve it, generally speaking, building the product is uh, usually the easiest part. The hardest part is being very clear about, okay, this is the problem. This is why it's important. This is how people are going to benefit from it. And this is how we're going to go about actually building it. The actual act of building generally tends to be very easy, but I think it's answering those first few questions are very, very kind of tough, especially when you're building something completely new that you might not have any reference point to compare it to. And so let's say that somebody has identified a problem that they want to tackle and they have their big idea. What is the first thing that that person should do? I said it earlier, but find a customer, get your friend to use it, <laughs> get your mom to use it, get anybody that you can get your hands on to just try what you've built. Kadana specifically, you've identified the problem and, and this is the solution. How does an issue-oriented company balance sort of the profit-driven demand with the sort of ethos and goals of its mission? Um, and do, though, do you find that those two ideas ever conflict with one another? Yeah, I think for us, especially, we've been able to find a way that creates like a win-win situation for all of the parties involved. So I think there are cases where you can you know, take a problem, take an issue and figure out a solution where it benefits both the business and the employee. So in our case, how we do that is that we're able to offer value to the business itself. And businesses generally want to help their employees because if their employees do well, the business does well. So we've created kind of this ecosystem where if you help the business, we're also able to offer this benefit to their employees at a subsidy, which the business is providing. The employees are happy because they're getting access to their earned wage access. And the business is now happy because once the employees get access to this, it's been proven that generally they're a lot more satisfied with their work condition. Generally, they're a bit more productive when it comes to work. And that ultimately feeds into making sure that the, the business that we have is succeeding. And so more generally, how do you see these two goals interacting on, on a general sense, right? If somebody does have a mission-driven company that also requires profit, how do these two things typically interact? 
it, it's tough, but ultimately you have to ask the questions like the issue oriented thing that you're working on. What is the ultimate thing that can help it grow and scale? And a lot of the times the answer is that some sort of funding or some sort of business model where you're able to generate money so you can keep growing it. So, you know, just looking at something in isolation where you just want to be an issue oriented company is okay, but you also always need to kind of factor in if you want this to be 10x, 100x what it is, how do you actually find the means to do that? So sometimes you have to get creative and figure out how can you do that where you're getting the profits that is eventually fueling this issue oriented mission that you have. Great. And so I'm excited for this question um, because I feel like it's been lingering in my mind the entire time. What is it like to run a company with a close friend and someone you have known since the second day of college? And who you've lived with for a, a long time. It's a very tough journey, right? Starting a company, um, going through the, the lows and highs. And I think one big thing that's very important is sort of trust. Um, that sort of friendship that Amir and I have is deep-rooted in trust we have for one another. And I cannot imagine like doing this entire journey without without Amir. So I do think that uh, for me, I wouldn't have it any, any other way. Um, it's, it's the best decision I think we made for the company. Amir, any any other thoughts? I, I think I think he said it perfectly. I really wouldn't want to do this any other way for the exact same reasons. Yeah. Oh, Nicholas, should we start a? <laughs> should we launch a startup? <laughs> Something with podcasts? There we go. There we go. This is the light bulb moment. This is the light bulb moment. It's sitting here with you guys, and then we're gonna go on somebody else's podcast, and we're gonna talk about how we were sitting here. <laughs> So, I mean, to that end, what is something that you wish that you had known or something that would have served you well if you didn't have to learn it during the process, but if you had already known it when you first started out? Yeah, I think it's it's what Albert mentioned just a second ago. It's like, get your early customers early, build the MVP, but concurrently make sure you're talking to customers, getting their feedback. Because like I mentioned, you know, building the product sometimes tend to be easy, but there's a lot of assumptions that are built into it. And then once you actually get your first customers and start talking to them, you realize that some of them might not have been accurate. So really, you know, from day one, yes, have a vision for how you want to execute on the product, but also spend a, a good chunk of your time just finding the customers, talking to them them, iterating with them. I think these days it's very easy to prototype something. So, you know, just start from that and, and go out and find your first few customers. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And so turning back the, the clock to your time at Grinnell, if we sort of all time traveled back to Albert and Amir at Grinnell, uh, what would they have to say to this? And maybe conversely, do you guys now have anything you think you'd want them to know? I think they'll be surprised. <laughs> they'll be like, okay, really? I'm not sure that it was part of the plan or some grand strategy to start a business. Hopefully, they would be inspired that they could do it, right? And maybe they would have started earlier, right? It's, it's way easier, I think, when you start earlier than later because you get to learn, you get to make mistakes. And, and oftentimes, it feels very out there to start a business, but I think they'll be inspired to possibly start sooner. And so as we come to the end of this conversation, do you have any advice for current Grinnell students? I'll start. So Grinnell is one of those unique places where you have a ton of diversity. You have a ton of people that are going to have the same viewpoint of you. You're going to have a ton of people that you're going to do common activities with. I think what ends up happening in the real world is that those things are kind of hard to come by. So all of the relationships and everything you develop in terms of people is really, really important. You know, even for us, I probably wouldn't have started this company if I hadn't met Albert in college. 
a lot of the time that you spend, you know, there's obviously a baseline amount of work you need to do to make sure you get good grades, obviously, but also really focus on connecting with other people like you guys are doing, uh, finding common things that you want to explore, spend more time on, and really focus on nourishing those relationships because those are ultimately going to be the things that are going to have a major impact in your life after you leave Grinnell. Albert, do you have anything that you'd want to add? I would say don't underestimate the relationships. You find lifelong partners sometimes. You find friends that are going to be there for a long time, like Amir and other folks in our circle. So don't take that for granted, I think, would, would be what I'll say. As you both go forth from this conversation, what are you looking forward to? Personally, I haven't been home to Pakistan in, in about a year or so and going home in December. So really looking forward to that. It's always, you know, always nice to just reconnect with friends and old friends and stuff like that. So I think this is a good time to also do that. Thank you guys so, 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 so much for making the time to talk to us. This has been really fun and really eye-opening. We've really enjoyed it. No, thank you guys. Thank you. I mean, you've made it very easy and there was very good questions. We'll stay in touch. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College. This episode was produced by Meredith Benjamin. Our executive producer is Katie Kriegel. Find us online at career.grinnell.edu. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Going Forth Podcast. Listen to more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Go forth, Grinnellian. See you next time. Mm-hmm.